listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. All right. Hello, everyone. Um, Thanks for joining us at M Pavilion this evening. My name is Rachel Elliott-Jones, and I'm the head of public programs at Malonglo. I'm a white woman in my 30s. My pronouns are she, her. I have shoulder-length brown hair with a fringe that sits just above my eyes. I'm wearing black trousers, black and purple sandals with blue socks, and a purple knitted jumper with light blue flowers on it. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung and the Yulukut Willem Boonarung as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet today. Wundri Wurrung and Yulukut Willem Boonarung are two of the five major language groups of the Greater Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their land, their ancestors, and their elders, past, present, and emerging. I would also acknowledge the traditional custodians of all the lands on which anyone watching or listening to this event might be on today. We are here this evening to watch Three Bodies, a short film directed by Dorothy Allen Picard, and then have a discussion about some of the ideas raised. This event is part of Melbourne Design Week 2021, which is centered upon the provocation, design the world you want, questioning how we can work together to create a better, healthier future for the planet and its inhabitants. Three Bodies has been commissioned by Malonglo as part of our digital publication, Designing with Difference, which we're launching tonight. Um, And the film goes alongside two essays by Dr. Joss Boyes and a collection of relevant resources. Three Bodies follows the journey of three people, Joy Addo, Sonia Puyay, and Kat Hawkins, as they make a journey from public to private space, from outside to in. The footage is shot by the film's contributors and is accompanied by their own narration as they reflect on their experience and impressions of navigating the world through and in non-normative body minds, experiences of fitting and misfitting, of anxiety and pleasure. It's an invitation for us to engage with the world through diverse perspectives and to critically reflect on the privileges, frustrations and everyday joys of our own unique body minds as we navigate public and private spaces. Designing with Difference is an online research series that explores what it means to create and deliver truly accessible built space beyond building code and beyond universal design. In challenging traditional models of design for disability, the publication questions how might design change if we recognize, value, and learn from the enormous variety of human embodiments, perceptions, and experiences of built spaces. How can we work towards design and delivery process that prevent the built environment from disabling some while enabling others? We'll be considering these questions and more in tonight's panel discussion. The panel will be facilitated by Jack's Jackie Brown and includes speakers Jeff Riding, Margarita Coppolino, and Dr. Joss Boys. Jack's, Jeff, and Margarita are joining us here in person, while Joss is joining from the UK on screen via Zoom. So I'd like to extend a big thank you to all the speakers for being involved, Um, to Dorothy, Joy, Sonia, and Kat for the film, 
um, to M Pavilion for hosting us, and to Melbourne Design Week for including our event within the program. Uh, shortly, we'll be screening an introduction to the film uh, by Dorothy, and then the film itself. Uh, following that, we'll um, get the Zoom set up with Joss, and we'll then cross to the panel to introduce themselves. Uh, and Jax will facilitate a panel discussion for around half an hour, and then we'll open to the audience for questions for the last 50 minutes of the event. So I hope you enjoy the film. Hello, my name's Dorothy and um, I'm a filmmaker and I have just directed the film that you're gonna see, Three Bodies. Um, I am in my late 20s and I'm a white woman with recently bleached blonde hair and wearing a white shirt. Um, so initially we had quite a specific, there was quite a specific brief and what I was looking to make was a film about three different people moving from an interior to an exterior space um, and that was going to be the same space and it was really looking at how three different people with different experiences of the world which are mediated through different neurodiversities and disabilities would experience the same space in very different ways. And because of COVID-19 and all of the restrictions on filming and just general kind of, um, yeah, general health concerns, we eventually realised that um, we were going to approach the film differently. And so what we did was I contacted several different people, Kat, Sonia and Joy, some of whom I've worked with before, some of whom I've read articles or seen their work, um, and others who featured in short films that I really liked. And I contacted them and explained the idea. Um, and it was really through a conversation with Sonia, who is an autistic artist based in Oxford, that we decided actually it might be really interesting, rather than me doing the filming, to hand over to them and to get them to film their journeys through different spaces and then find a way um, through a kind of voiceover narration to begin to, I guess, get, get a better sense of all their sensorial experience um, of both interiors and exteriors. So the brief was quite... I had long conversations with all three women and it was really a coincidence that it ended up being three women, but I do think there's something interesting in that. Um, and it became very much about these specific elements to do with how they experience different spaces. One thing all, all of the women had in common was that um, they feel much more kind of safe and at home in interiors, particularly their own homes. And the outside space poses a lot of different kind of threats and challenges for them. But, um, yeah, so so because so joy is partially blind and when we spoke it became clear that for her it was a lot to do with the surfaces of the floors and the sounds that she could hear um and the familiarity of the space so she kind of focused on that for sonia who's late diagnosed autistic woman she um essentially one of the main one of the main experiences that she wanted to draw upon was to do with sensory overload and to do with how different shapes um, and particularly strong sounds, loud sounds, can really be kind of overstimulating and make it quite difficult for her to just move through an exterior space. Um, and for Kat, who is a prosthetics wearer and sometimes wheelchair user, 
hers was very much about she's also a dancer so it was like a really very much kind of physical bodily response to the world that she wanted to explore and I suppose she more than anyone spoke a lot about people's response to her and how that makes her feel either safe or very vulnerable in different spaces um, so it was really lovely to be able to hand over the, to the women and to some extent let them take in, interpret this brief and take the film um, in different directions um, and I had a lot of I had a lot of fun editing it together and, and finding these moments of crossover or commonality between um, what the women were describing. And then I worked with um, Jan, who is an editor and visual artist, to add another purely visual layer, um, which I suppose just adds a texture and explores space in a more kind of digitised way. Um, so, yeah, the... The, you know, I, I learned uh, I learned a great deal specifically about these women's different experiences just through the conversations with them, and it was really wonderful to actually hand cameras over to other people and let that become um, the basis of the film. And um, yeah, and I hope I hope you enjoy watching it. Things are not very clear to me. Everything's like quite fuzzy. The different sensory experiences that are out there, it's quite shocking to think about how intrusive it all feels. Sort of continually overstimulated when you can't filter the information that's coming at you. have various different ways of moving through space and various different objects and metal things. If you took them all away, like who would I be and how would I get around this world? I always look straight ahead. I don't really look down that much. I mainly look at what's in front of me because I let my cane feel what's on the floor. When I'm outside, it's just sort of an assault to the senses, to, to the point where you might actually just not be able to cope. Going outside, it's actually very difficult for me to envisage where I will enjoy myself and what will I be able to do. kind of almost move around for me because depending on like my fitting and things like that things can be quite uneven underneath me suddenly you find this tangle of shapes kind of like something that you've got to navigate really carefully I mean, it feels really intrusive quite threatening
if I have my prosthetic legs on, I can walk, but the ground changes and shifts all the time. I have to be very aware and my senses have to be very attuned to the environment. Mud feels different to concrete, feels different to gravel. I'm not able to propel myself in my chair very far. I have to get over curbs and I'm still getting used to the gravity of it. When I'm going from like outside into a building, I worry a lot of the time about lighting because like outside is obviously bright. And then when you go into buildings, a lot of the time they can be like dim and that kind of shift in lighting always affects my eyes and my vision. And so it's really difficult to navigate. I can very quickly feel spatially challenged, which means I'm either going to get lost or I'm literally going to feel a bit off balance. Details will catch my peripheral vision and then I'll want to home in on them and be still. And that's something that I find joyful beyond words, really. My car brings me so much movement and so many more options and things to do. Like during COVID, so many people have been talking about their lovely long hikes and I feel like that's extremely difficult and hard for me to imagine for my body. I like feeling held in spaces. It feels comfortable and secure freeing. When I get inside, when I get home, I definitely feel safe and like I know where everything is and there's just less things to worry about. Inside and outside present quite contrasting sensory experiences. Being in a controlled environment makes it much easier to just be. If I can relate something to my comfort zone, which is my domestic space, it sort of somehow sparks a moment of joy. I love that idea of outside spaces somehow mirroring and echoing the domestic. I think my relationship with space is complicated and shifting all the time. That's one thing that all disabled people that I know talk about is this feeling of being scared by spaces that we don't already know. And also I have to plan a lot to be looked at and stared at or to have people coming up to me and saying things it can really take over a lot of space in my mind and be quite hard and confusing. Um, so I'm going to hand over to Margarita to do an acknowledgement. So I'll do my best. Uh, this is where my dyslexia come out, but it, I'll give it a go. I would like to, be, uh, like to begin by acknowledging the Wulonani people of the Kuru Nation on whose land I, I am tonight and pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. 
And I extend my respects to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people who are with us tonight. This land was never considered more treaty signed. The processes of colonization, occupation, and colonization that begins over the two centuries ago continue to this day. In the face of this, I want to recognize the strength, resilience, and pride of the Kuru Nation people of this land. Always was, will be Aboriginal land. Thank you. <clears throat> um, and I just wanted to highlight um, an organisation that does some really fabulous work at the intersection of race and disability in Australia, and they're called the First People's Disability Network of Australia. Um, and they're a national organisation that really is run by and for uh, First Nations people with disabilities. So if you haven't heard of them before, they're called the First People's Disability Network of Australia. Um, I really encourage you to look them up and find out ways that you can support their great work and amplify um, their voices. Uh, we know that around 50% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Australia live with what we would uh, think of as disabilities or impairments, um, but because um, it's often a medical westernised lens that we use to think about and define disability generally, and we're going to talk about the different ways we might think about disability tonight. But a lot of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people just don't, that doesn't resonate with them and their experience of their body or mind. Um, so they won't self-identify as living with disability. So that's just something interesting to note and to think about, particularly when we think about who has access to, uh, to a different identities, to services and supports in Australia, particularly under the NDIS, and who doesn't get access to those services and supports um, because they don't utilise uh, Western uh, ideas of disability. Um, so I just thought I'd throw that in to spark your thinking about that. Um, so my name's Jax. My pronouns are they and them. Uh, I identify as gender diverse. Uh, I identify proudly as disabled, um, as queer, as a parent. Um, I, tonight I am wearing a pleather jacket, it's not leather, um, a, a shirt with a parrot on it, it's a bird that's pretending to be a pear, my partner really likes puns, um, black jeans, uh, because I'm from Melbourne, we like black. Um, I am sporting a little bit of rainbow though. I do have rainbow shoelaces on. I always like to have a bit of rainbow on me somewhere. Um, I'm currently in my manual wheelchair. I have a, a manual wheelchair and a power wheelchair as well. Um, and I'll talk about that in a second in terms of what it means to move through space into very different mobility devices. Um, I'm in my manual wheelchair. Um, which means I'm pretty butch and have to do a lot of the pushing myself up and down hills and over things uh, with my hot arm muscles. Anyway, moving on. Um, I have a cup holder, speaking of modifications, um, which when I uh, tied it to this chair, I was very excited because I'd finally be able to carry cups of coffee as opposed to carrying them between my thighs 
which is not the best way of carrying hot liquid. Um, but it doesn't actually really work. My kid just uses it as a, a foothold to climb onto my lap. And so she's kind of wrecked it and bent it out of shape. Um, I was just going to share a, a little anecdote about um, moving through space as a wheelchair user. Um, before I had a kid, I thought a lot about what does it mean to be a queer parent and what does it mean to be a parent with a disability. Um, and I really didn't have any role models to think about what does uh, parenting a kid and parenting a small baby and now a three-year-old look like? How would I do those things? How would I do them differently? How would I engage with her? Um, how would I do them in ways that were supportive and affirming of me and my parenting um, and our family? And one of the things I really thought a lot about when my partner was pregnant with our child and then when we had her as a small baby um, and, and now when we go out together uh, in my power chair or on my lap in this, this manual chair is what are the things that she's learning from me as her parent in terms of what does it mean to move through space uh, on the body or on the lap of somebody who moves through space really differently? What's her experience of going across a gravelly path and, and feeling that crunch of gravel under my wheels? How is it different to when you walk across a path? What does it feel like to ride over the autumn leaves that are in our city and feel that crunch? How does it feel to go down a hill together? Um, what are the different types of embodiment that she's going to understand and to, to experience because I'm her parent and she loves me and she's, you know, connected in with my body and who I am? Um, so I think a lot about that and, and that kind of day-to-day -day learning of what the lived experience of disability is for her um, is something that is beyond a lot of the stereotypical notions of what people think disability might mean or might feel like. Um, so I thought I'd begin with that, that little... Um, Thinking, and then I have a bit of a. Um, when we go to Q and A later, I have a bit of a curly um, design question for you all around how could we, um, how could we design with parents with disabilities in mind, and their children. So anyway, um, so in the film that we just saw, the characters seem to have their own happy place, a place where they felt most comfortable, in the car or at home. What for each of the panellists, and I'll start with Margarita, is your most joyous place to be? Can you describe that place to me? Okay. Um, do I have to give a description first? Of yes, sure. Okay. So, uh, my description is that I'm sitting lower than Jax, who's sitting next to me. Uh, so, when I sit down at the same height, I'm actually taller than Jax. So my feet are about two inches off the ground because the stool is not low enough for me to reach the ground. I'm wearing navy shoes with a white sole, navy pants, and going up to a blue top and jacket. I've got black hair, really bright red glasses, and short grey and black hair. Um, and my stool, 
is white. Okay, so to the question. Hmm. So when we talk about feeling better in dark, quiet space, it might be difficult. Um, how will we balance these? So from a person who is short statured, living with a dwarfism type, um, I think the thing that I'm acutely aware of space, particularly quiet space, and I think the other thing that I think I need to say is because I'm highly sensitive, that you know, like this is a really large space. So I actually feel quite small, but actually quite large. If you put me in a dark space, I actually, uh, I've always been scared of the dark, but anyway, I won't go there. And that's always been because of my upbringing. Quiet space was always to me in a church. Um, anyway, not that I go there now. Um, but I think when we talk about, for me, navigating space in everyday life, everything's super big to me than the average size person. So when I actually ride around on my scooter, which is called Betsy, and I'm sitting on that, I'm actually quite tall. I actually get to feel what it's like for people who are average height. But when I'm walking, actually, everything's 10 times bigger. So space to me uh, is quite big. I think I'm on the right track. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Great. Um, and Jeff, do you want to introduce yourself, uh, give a visual description, and then tell us what your favourite place to be is? Sure, will do. Okay. Uh, my name's Jeff, and I'm an urban designer, and uh, I'm an Auslan teacher. So uh, I'm deaf, that's not visible. Uh, I have a salt and pepper mullet. I'm wearing a black top, black trousers, black boots, silver chain, earrings, and a black wash, a watch. My drink's somewhere over to the side, but that's okay. Anyway, so I think that's all, but I was thinking about uh, my most joyous space. And uh, for me, as a visual person, being deaf, using sign language, how I relate to the world is through my language, Auslan. So I'm most happiest in the space with deaf people or hearing people who can sign and communicating with my own language. It's not more about the physical design of the space, it's more the communication itself, regardless of where I am, not the physical environment. So it is a little bit different in that respect. Great, thank you. Um, and Joss, boys, what about your visual description and then your favourite place? We can't hear you. Okay, I'm unmuted. Yeah, well done. <laughs> Hi everyone, I'm Joss, uh, I'm a white non-disabled cisgender woman, I'm in my mid-60s, uh, I've got short greying hair and a kind of asymmetrical bob and I have red glasses um, and I'm basically still in my pyjamas because it's early morning lockdown here in London um, and so I'm sitting at my computer in my third floor flat on what is turning out to be an unexpectedly hot day against a backdrop of 
uh, pretty worn, a sort of orangey-brown wallpaper, which is covered in a pattern of small flowers. And I can see, uh, I don't know if you can, some streaks of sunlight coming in through the Venetian blind. Um, I think my, my happy space really is, um, uh, as a non-disabled woman, I think that working uh, a lot with disabled artists, one of the things we do is kind of redefine um, lecture settings. So my favorite space really is where you have a group of people together, uh, but you're not in serried ranks where you all have to sit upright and behave properly, not speak or act un inappropriately um, uh, during the talks, and you're only allowed to talk at the end, but we have a very different setup where there are different arrangements, there are sofas, people sit in different way, chairs are in a kind of semicircle for uh, deaf people who sign, so that it's very easy to communicate with each other. Uh, and there's quite a lot of interruptions, so if something isn't clear, somebody from the audience is quite likely to ask a question or ask for clarification. Um, so for me, that's, there's something very beautiful about redefining the nature of the, the kind of public speaking from a disability perspective. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, and a great reminder to me to encourage you all to um, get up and move around if you want to interject. Um, don't feel like you'll have to sit there attentively for the next 20 or so minutes. Um, use the space in whatever way uh, feels right and works best for you. Um, I have another question um, for my two disabled panellists here with me, um, which is, how can disability be a creative generator for designing spaces? How do you feel as people with disabilities and as someone who's deaf, um, you're an innovator when it comes to design? Really what's interesting for me is a creative generator is being seen and also being able to be who you are. So again, looking at design, whether it's uh, in space, often the, the issue is hidden. So we've seen a lot of access being provided through Auslan interpreters on the television during COVID with the press conferences. And uh, Auslan users are a very small percentage of the Australian population, but it's become very visible over the last year through the coverage of the interpreters in the media. So that has uh, had a positive influence in creating people thinking about deaf people, uh, increasing awareness about our language, who we are, and hopefully that means that more of us are allowed to be seen and allowed to be. That's the key and that's really the generator, the generating force. Okay. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I, I should mention that my... Excuse me, I've got a fog in my throat. Uh, my happy place is actually sitting on top of a mountain overlooking uh, the water. So I should have mentioned that earlier. Uh, for me, I think uh, having a disability creative general could fall on the second question. Yeah, yeah how, are you, how is disability a generator? a creative generator in designing spaces. Well, there you go. So one of my other disabilities is that I'm partly deaf and I lip read. So sometimes I misinterpret some of the questions we're up to. So I feel like I jumped down the page. So I do apologize. And I think this one is 
creative generator for design space is, is that sometimes when we come up with a design that's universal, it actually, in some cases, will be much more universal for other people as well. So, whilst I might, um, I'm just using my scooter as an example, when that was modified for me to use the feet, because uh, there was a design, it uh, actually became accessible, now that particular scooter now can be accessible for young children. So, you know, that's just an example of where my modification of design spaces actually benefit other people. Mm, yeah, great. Um, and I think it's really important to think about the history of disability rights um, in the UK, in the US, in other countries, but also in Australia. Often people are not aware of the long and vibrant uh, activist radical history that we have of people with disabilities really fighting for um, and demanding our rights and demanding access to places and public spaces and transport and buildings and employment opportunities. Just the other week, there was a protest in Melbourne by um, wheelchair users and scooter users about the fact that the Victorian government has decided to spend all this money refurbishing 100 old trams, so the inaccessible trams that people can't get on or off. They've decided instead of uh, spending money on buying new accessible trams, they're going to refurbish the old trams. They're going to keep that history of exclusion alive in our, in our public transport system. So I think for me growing up as a young disabled person, um, and kind of starting to develop my disability pride and moving away from a medical model of disability which saw my body as kind of a deficit, as something wrong with me, more to a rights-based or social model approach which says that it's the society that's the issue, it's society that needs to change. Um, really starting to understand that there's a long history of people with non-normative body or minds that came before me that have been demanding change and, and fighting for that change was really fundamental in starting to think about where I belonged and um, that my identity wasn't something to feel ashamed of, but something that I could feel pride in and that I could feel connected to other disabled people. Um, I'm going to throw to Joss now. Um, I, I read your essays uh, last night and I really, really enjoyed them. And I, I enjoyed them for a number of reasons. I, I loved um, your understanding of the history of disability rights and how, how people have um, changed the built environment and demanded that change. Um, but I, I really liked um, how you bring attention to the built environment and the role the built environment plays in creating disability. Um, you write um, in your essay, uh, um, Designing and Delivering Differently, that people who fit into their surroundings uh, need, to pay need to pay attention to their built environment. Um, and this is because people who fit into their surroundings, non-disabled, 
uh, normative people um, can kind of move through the world and not trouble the world around them. Um, not their existence doesn't kind of trouble spaces in the way that inhabiting a deaf or disabled body does. So my question is, how do we get non-disabled people to be aware of their bodily privilege? And how can they use this privilege to redesign spaces that are aware and responsive to difference? That's such a great question, and it's a difficult question that I think we're all, you know, want to be moving towards. The, um, the work that I've been doing with uh, the uh, partially sighted artist Zoe Partington, who's the co-founder of the Disordinary Architecture Project, really literally over the last 10 years has been trying to not just work out how to do that, but then experiment, uh, try out different methods with uh, particularly non-disabled, but also disabled artists, uh, architects and built environment professionals, to see whether it's effective, to see whether we can actually shift mindsets, which I think is, for me, the biggest problem. Um, and I guess... Uh, I, I mean, the doing of it, I think, is something... It feels like it's quite a good moment uh, in the way, for example, that Black Lives Matter has focused on white privilege. So it's not just that somehow uh, black, and, black people, people of colour, indigenous people have to, have to be the ones who push forward on this, but that uh, the people in normative bodies, in white bodies, have to recognise their own privilege and have to uh, begin to think of ways to um, move beyond their kind of assumptions. And for me, the most immediate thing um, in the publication, it sounds quite simple, I think. I, so many non-disabled people say to me, oh, I don't know any disabled people. I don't know what to say to them. Uh, and I'm like, it's, it's not really about you. Um, and I found the way that I got into it was, you know, through social media. I just started signing up to people on Twitter and Facebook, um, you know, disabled activists, uh, artists, scholars, um, and just found this amazingly rich world of investigation and provocation and creativity um, that kind of really shifted my attitude. So that's where I would start. Mm. So, so finding people that are engaged in that kind of political, critical thinking and, and making those connections and kind of following their work, that, that's really great advice. Um, and your comment about, you know, you don't... Uh, people say they don't know any disabled people. Um, one of the things that I like to remind people is, you know, 80% of disabilities are invisible. So you probably do know more people than you think. Um, and if you're lucky enough to live into older age, you're going to acquire some impairments. So um, it's an experience that you'll probably find at some point in your life as well. But that's, that's interesting that people um, think they haven't met met a disabled person or come into contact with us before. Uh, Jackie, if I could just uh, add to that, yeah. um, something in relation to if you've never met a disabled person before or encountered one, it's interesting for deaf people often, it's an invisible disability because looking at me, I uh, appear to be physically abled and uh, I often have examples of people approaching me in the street and they ask me for directions in the city and I gesture, sorry I can't hear you, and then they freak out and they walk away from me not realising I was deaf. 
when they're actually trying to communicate with me in the street. So it's a point where if they've never encountered a deaf person, the language barrier, I appear to be physically able, but it's not until they communicate with me that they realise there's something different. But I just wanted to add to those comments. Yeah. Yeah, no, great. Um, this is a question for both of you. What is one thing you'd like to see included or changed in the design of public spaces to make them more accessible and inclusive? So if you could wave a magic wand and change one, one thing now, what would be your kind of big change? Uh, I think it's a very big question. Mm. Again, it goes back to myself, it's not the physical environment for me personally, it's about the awareness of deaf people in the space, that we exist, we do have our own culture and language, um, it's not for me to advocate for, we've been advocating for access to language forever and ever, um, it's really up to those people to be aware or cognizant that deaf people do exist, uh, learning Auslan, they don't need to be completely fluent, but having an awareness and understanding, if they understand the language and the culture, it means that we're involved in the the design of public spaces and in that process. Deaf people are not often aware of projects in the community by designers because the information simply isn't accessible in Auslan. So they potentially would have the opportunity to uh, be involved in that consultation process if access was provided, but often deaf perspective isn't captured in urban design. So access to information, uh, being inclusive, and it's up to the mainstream to ensure that we are included and that's a recognition of deaf people, our culture and our language. And it's difficult because it goes back to my comment before about how often we're not seen as deaf people in the public realm. So the difference is being deaf, using sign language and a cultural group. Mm. Great, thank you. What about you, Margaret? What would be your... Um, for me, it, it's, it's probably the, the obvious is quite often uh, accessible spaces uh, are just over there instead of everywhere. Um, so to be inclusive in the environment, I'd like to be able to sit anywhere instead of having to be one designated spot. To me, that's what inclusion's about. That's what uh, an inclusive uh, public space is, that anybody can sit anywhere. And there's signage, signage or symbols or images where everybody, irrespective of their intersectional lens, can feel welcome, feel safe. Mm, yeah, great answer. Um, so I've got another question for you, Margarita, um, which is a bit of a tricky one. Um, it's how do we navigate conflicting preferences with design? Or to put it another way, um, what do we do when there's competing access needs? So, for example, a space for someone who feels best in the dark, who likes quiet spaces, might be difficult for someone to navigate if they have low vision. How do you balance these things? And, and can we even balance them? Well, I think I kind of touched on it earlier, but I think for some people with disabilities, they actually prefer new darkness because too much bright lights. Like, I'm looking at these lights and I'm going, it's just doing my head in. Um, but in regards to, I need light so I can see people, I can see what they're saying. And, you know, how I survived uh, in life is body language. You know, body language actually tells me how comfortable a person is. 
I can't see that person because of a dark space or because of where I'm standing or there's something blocking the way. And so also I think the other thing I need to say in regards to sometimes the very minimal accessible design is forced, if I can use the word stereo, stereotyping. Mm. So that kind of, like I come along and you know, kind of feel like left out that I have to then add another layer of uh, complexity of uh, what's accessible for me. Mm. And that's why sometimes I don't speak up about what my needs are, apart from a um, person with who's short touch it, so I have a physical disability. But then, you know, I can't hear sometimes. So I'd be in an environment that could be very loud, uh, where lots of noise, and I can't hear people. Mm -hmm. mm. Um, and you mentioned before an intersectional lens, an intersectionality. And I'm really interested about um, how disability intersects with race and gender and sexuality. Um, in your experience, what would true inclusive uh, design look like in the built environment? And you touched on it before in your answer to the question, but I, I wonder if there's kind of anything else you'd like to add. Uh, look, I probably good thing to talk a little bit about my other intersectional lens, because mm -hmm. I think that gives people a bit of an understanding of you know, the whole person. Now, when you look at me, you only see uh, the fact that I have a physical disability, but then, you know, the name Margarita, I come from a cold background. And, um, I also identify as a lesbian. You can't tell that, but some people say, well, well I can because of the way you dress. I go, oh, really? Well, there you go. So that's, you know, comments and judgment people make of me. And I think, you know, for the work that I noticed that the environment, uh, particularly for people from Kazanko, you know, feeling safe, you know, this is a car park, uh, but for some communities or some parts of me, this, this represents a building very much like the building I was brought up in. So it takes me back to my childhood and being brought up in a very large institution. So I just wanted to mention that. Uh, and uh, I think in regards to uh, uh, you know when I walk into a building you see security guards because lots of buildings have security guards. I know some states you know that for some people particularly who have experienced uh, violence uh, and particularly have come from war torn uh, situations where they actually feel quite threatened by that. So I think they're the kind of things when you start talking about intersectional lens as a whole person, you need to look just beyond, you know, the built environment of what they physically look like, because there are other layers of factors that affects that person around the environment. Mm, yeah, no, great. Um, Jeff, I might throw to you now. Um, and my question is, what advantages in urban design and planning do you feel your deaf uh, experience and identity of the world affords you? 
I'm not sure if it's an advantage to myself, but probably to other people. So we refer to deaf gain. So the mainstream uh, contributing and learning from a deaf person such as myself, understanding the difference and incorporating that into what they do. So it means that they can design for people like us and also a universal design. So it's not really about what I get out of it, but more what society can benefit from me through a being a deaf person and deaf gain. Uh, that's one perspective and uh, again, having my own language, I see the world differently, I'm a visual person, I have a different way of expressing myself, um, I use space differently, I prefer to sit in the back corner of a room or uh, again, I don't want to be overwhelmed by too much information so I need to position myself where I can see the interpreter and access information. Uh, so they have insights to my experience and as far as I'm concerned, they have gain from, from me. It's not about what gain I get out of it. Mm, yeah, great. Um, is there a design project that you've worked on which you feel stands out as an example of designing with difference as a starting point? What would be the hallmarks of this project if you've got one? Uh, what did it involve? Um, how was the usual process adapted to enable uh, you to have input and to, to co-design it? It's a hard one to respond to. Uh, where I work in MGS Architects, we do a variety of assignments. So obviously in the urban design team, the scope is quite large. We start working at a high level, uh, working with various projects, uh, not necessarily specific projects, but we do a, an we have an architectural team who do wonderful work. Recently, they did uh, some work at Ozenam House, where they do uh, supported accommodation for social housing, crisis accommodation. It's been a really complex, interesting program, and different aspects need to be considered. Um, I didn't work particularly on that project, but I do a lot of the larger structural plans or urban design frameworks. So that works more about creating uh, a good structure for specific things to be able to happen. Uh, mm -hmm. And for example, if we think about uh, access to footpaths and also ramps and various projects that enable inclusive practices to happen. So obviously I work at the high level, not always uh, disability specific, but ensuring that the practices and the approaches uh, consider housing affordability, how that changes over time, duration, and ensuring the space can be designed and tweaked over time if needed for uh, different usages and I'm um, very much looking forward to working in, in that space more in the future. I can't think of a specific project, but yeah. Yeah, no, great, great. And that idea that, that we build for, you know, a variety of bodies and minds, but then we, we create an environment that we can kind of, that changes with us as we use it. I really, I really like that, that thinking. Um, Joss, I'm going to get to you now. Um, in your essay, you write, when designing for accessibility is explicitly considered, it, it is usually delegated to specialist consultants as if different non-normative bodies and minds are just too complex for normal, that's in quotation marks, architects, developers and clients to engage with. What does a co-design process look like between disabled and non-disabled people where they're both creators? in it together? Wow, that's a huge question. I, I, um, the experiences that we've had of that 
are uh, still quite small scale, but I think they give a hint of the kind of things that can happen. So um, we work we work recently, actually we work quite a lot with an architect's practice called Manolo, uh, Manolo and White. And this started from them. They won a design competition by um, using an audio description as part of their competition bid, rather than the very typical way of just providing um, visual designs. And, so, and then found that in uh, using audio description, they were learning a huge amount about the space that they were doing a refurbishment of a community building, and that they were gaining something from uh, using different design methods in terms of uh, the way that they uh, thought about how to make changes and the kind of whole variety of sensory ways, multimodal sensory ways that they could design the space. So we worked with them on, they started, they came to us because they'd already thought about that and we worked with them on um, developing uh, participatory methods with disabled people, clients, as part of that process. But that's become a kind of longer-term relationship where uh, they have a kind of immediate access to uh, disabled artists as co-creators of parts of what they do. Um, so they, it's a kind of... Uh, and there's lots of different ways that that works. We do workshops, but individual artists might um, well, uh, might talk to the, give a guest lecture. Um, there's a kind of lot of different ways in which that is enabled. And we've begun to work more and more, I think, with architectural practices in that way. They come to us kind of wanting access consultants, mm. um, you know, just to solve the problem for them. And we basically, I think what, what I'm interested in, the artists that I work with, is that we build a long-term relationship. And we have a variety of ways of connecting. So it's not like a project that specifically special needs that, uh, that somehow, um, and I'm going to use the expression wheeled in, that disabled people are wheeled in for, but that we, um, that this is about changing perspectives, changing attitudes, building, uh, moving away from this kind of fear and embarrassment that we talked about before towards a, a solidarity. Um, and I think it feels like early days, but it also feels like a way of uh, enabling uh, longer term, that access and inclusion is just a normal part of practice. It's not some add-on that needs specialists. And, and it's not a retrofit that's kind of done after something is not inclusive and then you've got to go and do a special thing for those special people over there to kind of give them access, that it's access right from the beginning of, of thinking about an idea. Um, that's what's, what strikes me as really exciting about that. Um, I've just realised that we're using uh, we're using disabled people or uh, disabled a lot. Um, and while I use that terminology as well as saying people with disabilities, um, in Australia we don't use we don't say disabled people as much as you do in the UK. Do you want to give some background on on that language and what it means? Yes, certainly, because uh, when I was working in uh, the University of New South Wales, we did a MOOC about disability and ended up rightly, I think, interspersing disabled people and people with disabilities kind of throughout. Um, and to some extent, I do that in the essay. Uh, 
I mean, there are reasons for both ways of using the language, and it does seem to be that it varies from place to place, and it is equally kind of um, uh, contested to some degree. So, you know, disabled people that I work with would not want to be called people with dis disabilities. Yeah. Um, and then when I'm in Australia, I'm very aware that when I say disabled people, everybody slightly flinches. Um, I mean, I'd be really interested in your view, Jackson, and the other panellists, but for me... The thing is, I think we get so caught up around politically correct language. I mean, I think it's important not that, you know, this, that, that disabled people are so often insulted that by, by non-disabled, thoughtless non-disabled people, language is important. But I've certainly found that I'll give a talk about new ways, you know, doing disability differently. And the conversation kind of focuses on, should we say this or should we say that? And I'm like, in the end... We need to move beyond that. We need to move beyond to, um, and it relates to what you were saying too, we need to move beyond ways of thinking about uh, cross alignments, intersectionality. Uh, we need to even go beyond identity without, uh, without somehow leaving behind the fact that people with disabilities are discriminated against endlessly and that the built environment is endlessly a frustrating and exhausting barrier to everyday life. But um, I think the, and I'll talk a little bit, you know, about misfitting, that there are ways mm. of getting beyond the, that language. Does anyone want to have any, any thoughts on the contested nature of uh, disabled versus person with disability or just uh, language use, um, you know, in the, in the uh, groups that you belong to, in the identity groups that you're part of? I think it's I think it's an interesting um, conversation, and one I know that um, I have a lot with my uh, disabled friends, but I don't know whether people outside of that group have the kind of same conversations about what it could mean. Uh, if I could add something there, mm. particularly around deaf people, it is complicated because on one hand. There's a lot of arguments about whether or not deaf people are actually disabled. A lot mm. of deaf people say we're a cultural linguistic minority, we're not disabled. And that it's a bit of a conflict because the language actually comes out of the fact that we're unable to hear, we're visual and the language has grown from there. But we don't feel disadvantaged, we're mm. proud of our deafness and our culture, we don't feel like it's a disability and that's where the contention is. And if we're too focused on the disability, we're not focused on the access rather than accepting our culture and our language. So again, trying to incorporate those perspectives. But there's a bit of an overlap. It's something that I do struggle with and mm. sometimes I'm not always comfortable to say I'm disabled straight away because I'm very proud of my deafness, my culture, my language. Uh, it doesn't really make too much of a difference to me if I have a barrier. It's a societal barrier. It's not my own barrier. Uh, and, you know, the social model is I'm disabled by them and uh, I see myself having my own language and culture, but mm. it's, uh, I, I guess it varies in different forms for different people. Mm. Did you want to add anything, Margarita? Yeah, look, um, I'll start off talking about the short subject community, because I think uh, that this is, a, this is a disability type that I have. And in the disability community around the world, different countries use different language. So here in Australia, we say short subject, people living with dwarfism conditions. In America, 
they say little people. In UK, they say people of restricted growth. So different parts of the world use languaging quite different. So, um, and always the debate is in our community that they don't identify having a disability. I personally, um, because for me growing up with a disability, I quite um, openly and on say that, yes, I am a person with a disability. I'm quite proud of the fact that, no, that's only a part of who I am. And language is language. And I think people tend to use language as a way of identifying a person. But, you know, like I always put the person first and then say, uh, I just happen to have uh, dwarfism, or I just happen to be uh, hard of hearing, or just happen to be quite anxious or have a bit of anxiety. Oh, and, you know, I've only just been diagnosed with dyslexia. God, how many of those have I talked about? Mm. I say, but hang on, I just margarita. Mm. Interesting. Um, I'm going to throw one final question to you, Joss, um, and then I'm going to go to audience questions. So please think up um, some questions while I ask this one. Um, in your final paragraph of Designing with Difference, you write, when it comes to understanding users and occupation, we have too often relied on the ergonomics and averages, on the norms and institutions, yet an average or a norm can only be produced by starting from the whole of the spectrum of people. It cannot exist without, its diverse, without this diversity. Um, so this idea that the norm is only, is only in existence because the other is also in existence, to put it another way. Um, and I think that that's, that's a really wonderful observation. Um, that the centre only exists because the margins also exist um, and that change often comes from those margins. Um, and you go on to say that small-scale actions can gather momentum and lead to bigger social changes. So what are the changes that you're working towards and what are the, what are the changes that you're hoping to see? Um, I think uh, the exactly as you say, that we have to find ways of moving beyond norms and averages, and as uh, Marguerite said, uh, beyond stereotypes, I think. And those kinds of ways of framing the world tend to operate around really simplistic binary oppositions. So if you're non-disabled, if you're white, uh, if you're straight, if you're cisgender, there's a kind of idea that you're the norm, you're unproblematic, you don't have to think about it at all. And then the other category that is put in exactly, as you say, in relationship to that is also seen inherently as inferior, whatever those other categories are. And simultaneously, these categories are seen as kind of essential, uh, essentialist and stable and unchanging. And it completely does not... Uh, map the way we all are in the world, that we have very different ways of being in the world uh, and that we um, uh, 
that those that that range of experiences is is kind of the richness of our neurobiodiversity is exactly what we should value and so we need to be open open up to that variety and uh, I think something we've really you know this is through working with the disordinary architecture project with disabled artists it is that if you use um, relational language like misfit and fitting and misfitting you rather than disability disabled and able-bodied you begin to see how um, the the barriers are whether they're attitudinal or physical are relational. They change with situations, they change with particular people, with particular places, and uh, that what we need to do is really understand those patterns, those differential patterns much better. And for me, uh, the big, the changes around that are really about um, starting from difference, starting from the outliers, starting from unruly, non-normative bodies, starting from the misfits, and uh, working from the kind of huge variety of different experiences that uh, people with disabilities have, recognizing that these are not all going to kind of fit into nice patterns, that they're often contested and conflicting, and that that's normal design behavior. When, you're, when you learn, you know, um, when you work in the built environment disciplines, you learn to deal with really complex and partial variables. But for complex historical reasons, and social reasons, people with disabilities are parked outside of that. So for me, it's stopping doing that, stopping turning it into the add-on, the retrofit, and doing it instead, making it uh, the thing that you start from. And typically, I've just got to pick up a delivery. <laughs> All right. Um, on that note, we're going to throw to audience questions. There's a microphone coming around. Here they come from up the back. Um, so put your hand up um, and wait for the mic so we can all hear you. Any any brave that. first person want to go? Come on. Yay, down the front. Kill the lights. Jax, this is a question for you, actually. I got intrigued when you said that you're talking with your friends and your networks about the t kind of terminologies that you use. And I just wanted you to talk about that a little bit in Australia. Um, yeah. Um, so I, I, as I said, I use disabled person or disabled people and I use people with disabilities. Um, and I do that quite deliberately because um, from a social model of disability perspective, to say I'm a disabled person says I'm disabled by a society that doesn't include me, that hasn't been built for my body in mind, that, that hasn't been designed for me. But it also says that I'm disadvantaged by the attitudes or stereotypes people hold about disability. Um, and so in the context of the social model and the disability rights movement, it calling myself a disabled person is not putting myself down. It's actually saying, I belong to a marginalised identity that's fighting for better access and human rights and social change. Um, but I think that we haven't, in Australia, we haven't had an, an engagement with the social model as a discourse in the same way that they have in the UK. So we tend to use person-first language, which is person with disability, and identity-first language is disabled person, yeah? 
Um, so there tends to be a bit of a push uh, from government, um, from disability organisations, definitely from the NDIS um, in Australia to use person-first language um, as though it's the only way you should be thinking about or referring to your body or your history of your community. Um, and I think like any minority group, um, language is contested, it's personal, it's political, it changes perhaps across your lifetime as you use it. You know, um, I identify as queer and gender diverse, I would have used different labels 10 years ago. Um, but they're the labels that give those parts of my life meaning. And so I think, um, for me, one of the key things to always hold is be curious and respectful when encountering other people in your life and in the world and, and listen to the ways that they're talking about themselves and the language that gives them meaning and then just mirror that back to them because that shows respect. Um, and it's okay to be uncomfortable. Sometimes I, I still get uncomfortable, you know, with, with trying to work out um, the, the complexity of language and identities in the community that I belong to. But I think just meeting the person where they're at and listening to that is, um, is a good place to start from and around. <laughs> um, any other questions or comments? Yes, hello everybody. Um, I just wanted to talk about, first of all, um, I'm a white woman, a cisgender woman, and uh, I'm able-bodied. Uh, I have uh, brown hair with a few streaks. I'm really interested to hear this conversation about the various perspectives on disability and especially around the space aspect. Uh, it's really interesting how society views how we able, are able to access uh, space and as Jack's talked about, the Indigenous community have their way of uh, disability perception, uh, looking at through that lens and that's the same for deaf people. So we have our own uh, feelings about the word disability as Jeff mentioned before. But my question is in relation to disability in space, in the disability community or sector, it's kind of interesting because when disabled people meet at functions and events, if a deaf person attends, we have Auslan interpreters provided, but the interpreter is not always uh, there the entire time. They're only booked for a certain period, then they leave. So after they leave, the deaf person, as a result, feels discriminated within the disability community. So I just wanted your thoughts on that and how we can potentially uh, ensure it's a more inclusive space for everybody, even as a deaf person within a disability function or event, and how we can be more inclusive regardless of uh, what our issues may be. So just thinking about that perspective and as a deaf person in the disability space, I'd love to know what you think. Mm. I feel like I've talked a lot. Do you want to jump in? Oh, yes, that's an interesting comment because um, it goes back to what I said before about 
we don't really see ourselves as being disabled because our barrier is language. So the question from the audience is, as a deaf person attending a conversation, regardless of whether or not they're able-bodied or disabled, uh, if the interpreter leaves early, the deaf person can't contribute. So we're automatically excluded in that space. We don't have access to language and being able to communicate with those people there. So we really rely on the interpreters to be there for that entire duration. So whether or not we can have an interpreter there for the entire period, that may not be possible. The other option is that people in that space learn Auslan. I don't know. So often when I talk about my space, for example, if I move house or I'm going out to meet friends in the community, for me, they have to be able to sign. I'm not, I, you know, it's not about me changing. They need to change to be able to be inclusive of me. We can't have interpreters there all the time. But for uh, larger gatherings, if it's a workplace or somewhere else, it's a bit difficult because you've only got limited time. Um, it's difficult to know how, how long the interpreter can stay there for and then Ideally, people fit in with us, so uh, we're only a small percentage of the population and people will say, oh, well, it doesn't matter, but that's not, not shouldn't be an excuse. Auslan's a beautiful language, it's a beautiful way of communicating and everybody ideally in that space should learn how to communicate using Auslan. That's my answer to your question. Yeah, and I wonder if there's a role for, for government in terms of... Um, providing funding to businesses and to organisations, to employers, to, you know, events and arts events, um, so that they subsidise the costs of, in, of having interpreters so that interpreters can be in spaces longer too. And, and can I just add, um, I think there's some really fabulous work going on with groups like the Disability Visibility Project and their Access is Love work, Maya Mingus and um, Alice Wong and Sins Invalid and I mean I don't know the Australian examples, I'm sure there are some but there's a, a lot of work going on in the States about uh, access as kind of collective care, as something that we all have responsibility for that is about space but is much more than space and so I think there's been a lot of a really interesting work going on about how we have processes for supporting each other, recognising different access needs, being able to tell access needs without and feeling safe in doing that, um, and that it is it's a kind of ongoing emergent process. It's not like something that's always solved with um, assistive technologies or devices. Yeah, I was just going to add, um, one of the things just recently that SBS uh, TV broadcasts have done, um, while they actually provide uh, radio and, and that in different uh, ethnic languages, they've now added Auslan to their language service, because they actually see it as a business case, uh, which is fabulous, you know, that you've got a major broadcasting now providing Auslan as part of a language service. And I just wish all the other TV stations actually follow this suit. Yeah, no, great point. Um, I realise that it's almost eight o'clock, um, so maybe we'll have time for one more question and then come find us afterwards if you want to talk more.
Look, my um, question is quite prosaic, I suppose. Um, it seems that there has been a need for advocates like yourself to kick and scream and yell to make changes in the built environment in Australia through building codes and Australian standards as the only way that we're making any progress. Um, I, I'd be interested to understand if there are models elsewhere that you're aware of that have accelerated that process, you know, that have moved us from taking baby steps to big steps quickly. Well, in the US, they litigate, so they just sue as a form of discrimination. Um, and I'm told that, um, that access is better in the US uh, uh, by and large than it is in Australia. No, Margaret, I've never been over there, so Margarita's saying first-hand experiences, that's not true. Okay. Um, any other examples of how we can fast-track it? Um, I'd just like to uh, talk a little bit about uh, my landlord. They're quite large, a quite large housing provider. And they are now looking at building, you know, because they're affordable housing, so they've got all types of housing. So their next building, what's well, going to be apartments, they're going to look at ways that the walls can actually be moved, each apartment as a way of making it adaptable for everybody. Now, I think that's very clever, right? because that's thinking beyond the square as about what can be done to buildings that could be adaptable for anybody who goes in or rents that particular property. Wow, great. All right, um, well, I might say a very big thank you for having us here this evening, I hope you found the discussion enjoyable to listen to as much as I found enjoyable to take part in. Um, and um, please feel free to reach out and find us on social media and continue the conversation. If you have questions or comments or um, thoughts, post this evening that you'd really love to connect and share. Um, so thank you. And thank you to my lovely panellists. Um, see you later. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. This podcast comes to you from our 2020 season. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.